my spirit is stirred, and um, God is in this place, isn't he? Where two or three are gathered, there he is to inhabit the praises of his people. And that's what he wants to do even more now, more than ever. What do you do when sorrows like sea billows roll? We're going to see on Good Friday that on the cross, when sorrows like sea billows were rolling for Christ, he was taking refuge in the Father. And we're going to see today that we can do the same thing through all the sorrows and the ups and downs of our lives. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 103, the book of Psalms, Psalm 103. I know that's true of me. I'll never forget an experience I had as a six-year-old way back in 1960. I know many of you can relate to this too. It, It happened in the middle of a road in Colorado Springs. My first father had died of cancer six months before when I was five and a half years old while we were missionaries in Hong Kong, but that was okay because I had my uncle who was my father's identical twin brother, and his family and our family lived together during those Hong Kong years, and so we were under the same roof, and it wasn't Uncle Gene. My sister and I called him Daddy Gene during those years, and uh, my dad was Daddy Dean to Uncle Gene's two kids, our double cousins. I'll never forget how their names would ring together, Dean and Gene, the Denler twins. I've told some of you about this, but not all of you, and none of you know what happened after all this in the middle of a road. They were a well-known evangelistic musical team who did evangelism all over the world. My dad played the trombone, my uncle the cornet. They were recruited by the Navy to play in the Navy band, but they declined. They were recruited by Billy Graham to come to Northwestern College when he was a president there. They were recruited by Dawson Trotman, founder of the Navigators, to go on staff with the Navs, and by Dick Hillis, founder of Overseas Crusades, to go on staff with them at the same time. They traveled through post-war Europe with Billy Graham, did crusades all over Africa and Asia, and we, we thought they were inseparable. We thought we were too. We were two families under the same roof during, again, during those Hong Kong years. We shared meals, vacations, bank accounts, and believe it or not, it worked. Two families living as one. They, they were the most eligible bachelors at Northwestern College. It seemed like they were all so blessed. And they married beautiful sisters who were co-eds at Northwestern College, Ruth and and Mary Barnett. It was a double wedding, an uh, an overseas wedding in Chiang Kai-shek's private chapel in Taiwan, uh, officiated by Dick Hillis, president of Overseas Crusades, a double wedding with a double honeymoon. (laughs) Separate, you know, separate rooms, of course, but double nonetheless. Surely they were double blessed, right? And on the arrival of two children apiece, they were doubly blessed again. Though in my case, I'm sure they wondered sometimes. But that, that is another story. Maybe I'll tell that sometime too. But, but then he died, 32 years of age. And we took a year-long furlough, went from Hong Kong to the States to see supporters and friends. And then at the end of this year, my uncle and his family went back to Asia. And my mother and my sister and I stayed in Colorado Springs where the Navs put us up in the Glenary Castle for seven years. Get that, a castle. But it didn't help much because even in a castle, deep down, I was home alone. Some of you have felt that way too. My uncle had become even more a father during the year in Hong Kong while my dad had cancer, which is why I wouldn't let him go. Why, a year later after this furlough, when they were leaving the springs for the mission field again, I I couldn't stop clutching his legs. 
He, he had to pull himself away while I, I stayed sobbing on the sidewalk. And he got into the car and they drove down the street and they headed for the west coast and they boarded a ship bound for Asia and they disappeared over the great horizon. I ran to the road as they drove away and for a brief moment, I'll never forget the sight. He was looking at me in the rear view mirror and I saw his warm smile and then while he waved outside the window, he drove off and turned the corner and he took the whole world with him. The universe emptied out. You know, I've been thinking lately, I've been a pastor to so many over a a number of decades, and so many these days, we're a broken culture, we're a broken society, we've got broken families like never before. So many these days, in one way or another, for one reason or another, I've encountered scores of them over the years, deep down, our home alone. So many so desperately need to come home to him like Christ did on the cross who found refuge in the Father. Without him, we are alone in an empty universe or so it can feel if you're anything like me, especially when sorrows like sea billows roll. And we saw two weeks ago that he brings us to that place again and again so that we can have more of him. Ever felt like that? Like that little white church alone on a vast empty plain home alone? But that's not the end of the story. Of course, it never is for those who believe because you see, it's almost 60 years later now and I'm still standing here and I'm a different person thanks to what happened 60 years ago. It's been a long journey, but now it's in the streets where I find the Father. In the very place where my uncle took the whole world with him as I walk and pray. So if you see me, I've not run out of gas and I don't need a ride, nor do I want one. (laughs) I don't want you, I want him. At least not then. And the same kind of thing has happened to many of you in the very place of your desperation for him who now come to him in your own unique way thanks to what he has done. One of my ways is to pray through Psalm 103 as I walk, both for me and for you, that this would be true for everyone in our church family, that we connect with the Father, because this is a psalm of the Father. It's a psalm that can fill the God-shaped vacuum that is, that is uh, uh, in us all it's as the answer to our Father hunger. The God-shaped vacuum that's in us all, the need for him that's in us all, if we're honest, the father hunger that's in us all who meets us at the point of our greatest desperation to the point that our greatest asset becomes our desperation. Because without that, we wouldn't give him the time of day. Because it's in our desperation that we find him. Christ said he came to lead us to the Father through the way of the cross, which means through the way of brokenness and weakness. And so today we move from the sinner's brokenness, as we saw it last week in Revelation 1, to the Father's fullness. It's time to encounter the Lord of the Word through the Word of the Lord once again, but this time the Father through the Psalm of the Father. Psalm 103, verse 
1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not rewarded us according to our sins, nor according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he withers. When the wind is passed over, it is, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, who remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you as angels, mighty in strength who obey his word, who perform the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Can't possibly unpack all of this. But it begins at the very beginning in verse 3 with the foundation for it all where David says he pardons all our iniquities. We just glide over these, and so we're going to focus one week at a time on each of these as we move through them, the first six verses, so that they can go deep into our souls when sorrows like sea billows roll. At times like these, in this life of the congregation, we need to get back to fundamentals, if you're anything like me. You know, you see reflections of the New Testament all over the Old Testament, as many of you know. And this is one of them, when David says he pardons all your iniquities. We look back at the finished work of Christ. They look forward, right, to the finished work of Christ, to what the blood of bulls and goats foretold would make possible when the Messiah would come, the suffering servant, that he would pardon all our iniquities once and for all through the blood of the Son, the final sacrifice. And so when David says he pardons all your iniquities, it's a reflection of a very important doctrine for those of us who are thousands of years later who know what the consummation is, and that is it's a reflection of the doctrine of justification. Justification is a judicial term that calls to mind a picture, and I call it to mind as I walk the streets. One that you can imagine as you pray through this psalm. It conjures up a scene, a scene of a judge with a, a gavel, and when it hits the bench, he says, not guilty. Bottom line answer to our father hunger, his forgiveness. 
It's already happened visibly or invisibly for those of us who believe, not guilty. But it's going to happen visibly someday at the great white throne before heaven and earth pass away. Justification is conferred on us now in the privacy of our hearts, but one day it's going to be confirmed in a very public way. And one day we will see what it really means. The human race is going to be standing before the great white throne of God, looking back for those who don't know Christ. The whole of life is going to seem like Sesame Street, you know, compared to this, compared to what's in front of them now. They'll see that God had let them off again and again and again. And they got, a, they got away with murder in the face of the grace that they had so taken for granted that had been lavished upon them in their, their, his attempt to win them to himself. But now they're being tried as an adult. And they'll see the degree to which they lived in willful denial, in denial of their depravity. And they'll hear, they'll hear the thunder of the fire and the distance and the, the cries of those who had just gone before them, the weeping of gnashing of teeth going into this fiery abyss. Never, never in their you know, wildest dreams did they think it would come to this, though, though deep down they knew it but did not admit it. There, there will be no way back because the world won't be there to go back to. Like John says in Revelation 20, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose presence heaven and earth had fled away. So now just the souls of men before their creator. No more buffers. It'll be like the prophet Joel said, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of the Lord is here. It'll it'll be a sea of humanity and they'll all recognize him instantly and the very sight of them is gonna send all of them to their knees. And us too. And his eyes will be like a fire that will see right through them. And his voice will be like thunder. And he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones. Into the eternal fire, for I never knew you. And he'll take back all the good that comes from him alone. He'll, he'll, he'll dress them down and strip them bare. And if you lived apart from him, he he will then live apart from you. He'll say then, okay then, I've tried and tried and tried. Have it your way. Life totally without me. I'll I'll strip it all away. All this from me. And you'll see who you are when you're naked and alone. He'll take back all the the good that comes from him alone. The beauty of our bodies, everything. All that they so took for granted and we're told in scripture they will be unrecognizable. But the Bible says they'll be like worms with animal sounds coming out of them the likes of which we've never heard. Their worms shall not die. Isaiah 66, 24. And the fire shall not be quenched. Because if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, Revelation 20:15, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But then he'll turn. He'll turn to those of us who are on the right side of the throne and the gavel will hit the bench and he'll say, guilty under the law, not guilty under grace. He'll say, guilty in the old man, not guilty in the new man, guilty in the flesh, not guilty through the cross, by the blood, by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus who is in you, who pardons all your iniquities. 
And then he'll say, come, you who are blessed of the Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And you will have heard about this, you know, all your Christian life. But still you will not believe your ears. And you will feel a shock of relief and a flood of tears maybe before the only one in the universe whose opinion matters. And we'll see then, as Martin Luther said, that man's first need is to find a gracious God. It's all that matters. And we'll feel then what we sang earlier, my sin, and I pray this, oh, the bliss of, my gl- of this glorious thought, my sin not in part from the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Or David, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, oh, my soul. Bottom line, well, I think that puts everything in perspective. And you can fill in the blanks under point one in your notes. Bottom line, no care compares to what you've been spared. We need to get back to fundamentals at times like these. Puts everything in perspective. No matter what we suffer, whether we're suffering alone or all together, as sometimes happens, no care compares to what we've been spared. But believe it or not, that's not the half of it. Because you see, justification also means that something else has happened. It's not just his forgiveness. It's his righteousness. According to Psalm 103. This is something that Psalm 103 alludes to as well as a foreshadowing of, of Romans. In verse 17 of Psalm 103, he's, where it says that his righteousness is to children's children. That's unbelievable. Starting with us. David's saying not only does he pardon all your wickedness, he gives away his righteousness. And what does that mean? Well, you see, the Father does a whole lot more than just pronounce us not guilty. Yeah, when we're justified, as we say, it's just as if we never sinned in his sight. But it's more than that. It's just as if we are sinless in his sight. And not just sinless in his sight, but splendorous in his sight. It's not only a clean record we get, Thanks to his forgiveness, uh, it's a clean record with new papers. It means we receive forgiveness for our depravity and that we receive a, a whole new identity. It says in Romans 3.21, if you'll turn there real quick, book of Romans chapter 3. It's exactly what it says in Romans 3. Famous verse, verse 21, but now, those are the two greatest words in the Bible. All this condemnation that's built up to Romans 3, but now, Paul says, but now, apart from the law, 
That is apart from anything we do to measure up to some standard, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, this is the gold standard we've been talking about, has been manifested. That is, we don't have to manufacture it within ourselves. No, it's been manifested toward us. The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, The law and the prophets reveal God's righteous character. As we all know, they set the gold standard, but that's all they can do. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, even the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What he's saying is this. God's law measures the standard for us, but God's Uh, love manifests the standard through us, not because of anything we've done or anything we do, anything we are, but through all who simply believe through faith in who he is and what he's done. And then the famous verse, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is nobody's good, except reading on by being justified as a gift by his grace. For, for, for the first three chapters, Paul talks about just how bad we are, how far we've fallen. It's all bad news, really bad news that in and of ourselves, apart from God, we're all going to the lake of fire. That's how bad we are. But now the good news that nobody's good except by being justified as a gift by his grace. What does that mean, that we're justified? Well, again, very simply, it means that he's pardoned all our iniquities. We've been pardoned by the only court in the universe that matters. And it means we've been given new papers. He's pardoned all our iniquities, our total depravity, declaring us not guilty, and he's given us a new identity. You see, the gavel actually comes down twice According to the rest of scripture, justification begins with forgiveness and it ends when he pronounces you righteous. We're talking about what theologians call imputation. It's the imputation of the very character of Christ here. That's how he sees you, which is the perfection of his every attribute. Just call to mind what we've seen in him in Revelation chapter one. The perfection of his every attribute, his every attitude, every behavior, every word, every thought, every motive in him. We're talking the splendor of the son of man who we've been beholding for two weeks now. That's how he sees you. It's two kinds of righteousness that he gives us, two kinds of splendor that he confers on us. It's imputed righteousness, and listen to me, imputed righteousness where he counts you as righteous, but it's also imparted righteousness where he's making you righteous, where he's giving you the glory of the Son of Man. Unbelievable. Imputed righteousness is justification. Imparted righteousness is sanctification. It's where he actually imparts what he legally imputes. It's where the legal fiction becomes true. Imputed righteousness means that's the way he sees you now. Imparted righteousness means that's that's what he's turning you into now. And everything works to that good end according to Romans 8. Everything. 
All of which is to say, he loves you now as if you already are what you will one day be. It's his transformational acceptance based on his unconditional forgiveness. His transformational acceptance, Roman numeral two in your notes. And we need to let this sink in, so let me say it again. You can fill in the blanks. He loves you now as if you already are what you will one day be. That's how God treats us. And that's how we ought to treat one another. And that's how you ought to treat yourself. But do you? You know, we readily accept what other people think about us. So why not accept what he thinks about us? We labor over what people think. We soar or crash depending on their view of us. And we usually connect the dots in all the wrong ways, right? But we still, we store a crash, whether or not it's even true. So often as someone said, I am not what I think I am. I am not what others think I am. I am what I think others think I am. <laughs> Too often I find my real self, Pascal said, in the thoughts I believe others have about me. Is that any way to think? Is that any way to live? What are you living for? Why not simply believe it in your mind, it's all by faith, and receive it into your heart that you are accepted and approved, not in the court of human opinion, but before the great white throne of God before the only one in the universe whose opinion matters, as we will see someday. To embrace your justification is to reckon and realize and revel in your identity before God Almighty. Thanks to the cross of Calvary that we're celebrating this week is to believe that his view of you is true. My mother was twice widowed, once when I was six and then when I was 45. And God used that desperation to drive her deep into him. And she's ministered to millions the world over. She really got into this. It's what she said years ago in a letter she wrote me. Here's where the rubber meets the road. She said, in my own life, she was very humble. I've been more aware lately of angry and resentful responses arising in my heart but I've been justified and that means I'm not to identify with these angry and resentful responses as the real me, but to kill them as I would cockroaches. To to kill them as I would cockroaches on a beautiful wedding dress because in God's eyes I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness as the bride of Christ. I'm to cast off these angry and resentful thoughts as invaders, as filthy spots on an otherwise healthy heart. It is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me, as as Paul said. It's not the real me. If I look on my sins as integral, valid parts of my real person, I'm stuck with them. 
And to take action against them is like attacking myself. Rather, I'm to say the real me in Christ is loving and positive, but that ugly, old, indwelling sin is taking over. These attitudes are filthy clothes, hiding the beauty of my new person in Christ. And here I am, magnifying them so that I lose sight of the flower who I am, and my vision is filled with the ugly bug that's on the flower. That's where the rubber meets the road. There it is, at the deepest levels. At the most practical levels, justification is so fundamental. Doesn't mean you stop hating cockroaches. And she brought that up because we ran into them all the time in Asia, and I hate cockroaches. Don't get me going. I hate them with a vengeance, with the utmost of hatred. Like it says in the Bible, I was born and raised with them, and God love them. No, God hates them too. He's got to. The, the God I know would not love cockroaches. To be sure, it does not mean that you stop hating cockroaches, but by no means. But what it does mean is this. You are not a cockroach. It's the difference between guilt and shame. Between distress over what you've done and despair over who you are. Guilt comes from conviction, which is good. Shame comes from condemnation, which is not good. No longer applies. When you're guilty, you rebuke yourself for acting like a cockroach. And well, you should. And me too. Shame is loathing yourself for being one. Or loathing someone else because they've acted like one and painting all their warts red and just writing them off. Being under shame is like that old Franz Kafka story that many of us read in high school called Metamorphosis. The guy wakes up and he's turned into a cockroach. (laughs) Can you imagine that? That that, that is, is the nightmare that Christ has delivered us from. Precisely. But still we go back there. People who think that way are all over the place these days, I found. You may feel like you're a roach because your father died and there must have been something wrong with you, which is the way I felt. Or maybe he was just distant, or maybe your parents were divorced, or you were abandoned. Maybe someone treated you like that when you were young. Maybe a mother or father did. Or maybe that's the way your boss treats you right now. It can make you, it can make you feel like you're in that empty place that we began with. Totally exposed. It's like you're going to be crushed underfoot as a roach at any moment, because that's what you deserve. And if that's you, I'd recommend Psalm 103, the Psalm of the Father. It can bring his fullness to your emptiness, to the very place of your greatest loss, like happens when I hit the streets. See that dark sweep there? His sweeping arms are there for all who believe. Can't see them, but we know they're there starting with his unconditional forgiveness and his transformational acceptance. Amazing love. How can it be? So shall we sing of that as the musicians come forward? It's the hymn that climaxes with these very truths. Verse 5, listen to this. This is what we're going to as we sing. No condemnation now I dread. 
Jesus and all in him is mine, best of all the Father. Alive in him my living head and clothed with righteousness divine. Amen.